Turn over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Today we conclude our study from the book of 1 John, the certainty Christ followers have in Christ. And I want to say everything leading up to this message has really uh, brought us to a very important place. They've really spoken well. Steve basically shared the message in a nutshell as we think about a way we can have certainty in this world. Our scripture reading is 1 John 5, chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. Follow along as I read. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify that the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three, these three agree, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. May God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I think back to 1972, and that night that I received Christ, and that first verse that was given to me to memorize was 1 John 5.13, that I could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have eternal life if I trusted in Christ, his grace through faith, and that he has transformed my life. And Lord, we are part of the only religion in the world that can say on this side of heaven or hell that we know with certainty based on the word of God that we can have the assurance of eternal life. So we thank you for that grace. We thank you for that certainty today. And may we be reminded of that as we go through this message. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Benjamin Franklin said in 1789, nothing is certain but death and taxes. And we've heard that discussed all through hundreds of years since then. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Of course, a wise man like Franklin knew that many other things are also certain. The Christian also knows that there are many certainties. Of spiritual truth, Christians are not afraid to say we know. In fact, the word know occurs 37 times in John's brief letter and eight times in this last chapter. Man has a deep desire for certainty and he will even dabble in the occult in his effort to find out Something for sure. <clears throat> a businessman, having dinner with his pastor, confided in him. He says, do you see those offices across the street? In them sit some of the most influential business owners in this town. Many of them used to come over here to this coffee shop and consult a fortune teller. She isn't here anymore, but a few years ago, you could count up the millions of dollars in this room as men waited to consult her. The life that is real is built on the divine certainties that are found in Jesus Christ. The world may accuse the Christian of being proud and dogmatic, but this doesn't keep us from saying that we know. We're going to look at the closing of this book as John deals with certain things a Christ follower can count on because it is the Word of God. So here, going back to the first uh, sermon as we introduced this book, 
just a reminder, the theme of this book is how to live in genuine fellowship with our Heavenly Father. The purpose of this book is to describe genuine salvation and to call out false teaching. The key word is knowing. It's used 37 times in this letter. And the key verse is 1 John 5, 13. Let's say it together. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And there's three evidences throughout this book. The moral evidence, he tells us, if you're truly a believer, you will keep my commandments. The relational evidence is that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the doctrinal evidence that you are a believer in Christ is what you believe about Jesus, that he's the God-man, that he was, he's eternal, that he came down to earth sinless. He was the Lamb of God who sacrificed his life, made an atonement and sacrifice for our sin and the sins of the world. If you have those three perspectives, John says you can have certainty that you're a believer in Christ. <clears throat> John the Apostle, he was the pastor of the Ephesian church, and he's overseer of the churches in Asia Minor. He's hammering home that a proper view of Jesus Christ is essential for salvation and for staying true to the teachings of the apostles. Now, John has been fighting probably the beginnings of Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism once again? Well, there's lots of aspects to it, but to summarize it, they believe they had a secret avenue, a secret place to the truth. They believe that the body and the material world was evil, but inside the soul of man was a, a spark of divinity that was good, that would go to heaven. And it didn't matter what the outer body did because you're going to go to heaven anyway. And they believe Christ was a man who had the Christ spirit come down upon him at his baptism and then leave him in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was crucified and went to the cross. So Jesus was only a man in their mind when he went to the cross. But remember what we believe, that Jesus came as the physical representation of God to man as his incarnation. Now incarnation is a fancy theological term that means that Jesus left heaven came down, wrapped himself in human flesh, and walked among us to represent and to let us know a picture of who God is. Remember that this Jesus claimed to be God. He said, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, 58. <clears throat> and because he claimed to be God, the Jewish people picked up stones ready to throw them at him and kill him for blasphemy. They knew what he was saying. And so it tells us in John 1 that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. He was a Jewish man. And many of the Jews called him a lying deceiver. They said that he led people astray, that he fomented insurrection against Rome, that he was drunken and a glutton and he hung out with sinners. His family thought he was insane. Some of the Jews accused him of being demon-possessed as he performed healings and miracles. And because the Jewish leaders at the time were so filled with rage and jealousy and hatred toward Jesus, they crucified him. Why should we believe in Christ and his promise of eternal life? Because of the indisputable testimony, as we're going to see, by God himself giving witness that Jesus was the very Son of God. So as we finish the book of 1 John, our first main point this morning is this, John's testimony of Jesus Christ. He ends where he began. 
In 1 John 1, he talks about how he was an eyewitness to who this man and this God was, Jesus Christ. He says, here's some testimony of who Christ is as we close the book. The external evidences that prove Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 6 of 1 John 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. He says there in verse 6, he, the one pointing to Jesus Christ, is the uniqueness, has the uniqueness of being my son. Notice the evidences John gives out in verses 6 and 7. John puts brackets around Jesus' public ministry using the terms water and blood. Water represents the beginning of his public ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. John the Baptist was reluctant, but Jesus said, you must do this. And we see evidence of the Trinity at his baptism when the Father spoke and the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. As a side note, one of the reasons Jesus wanted to be baptized publicly so that he could identify with sinners and give us an example of what we're supposed to do when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. As I studied this week, something really jumped out at me. Jesus always performed what God requires of people. Think about that. Jesus didn't say, be baptized. He says, I will be baptized. Jesus didn't say, be a servant. I will wash the disciples' feet. He did what he expects us to do. And then the blood that represents Jesus' death on the cross is the payment for the world's sin. Evidence is that he was the son of God at the events surrounding the cross. You remember the temple veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom when he said it is finished. Darkness came over Golgotha from noon to three as an eclipse of the sun occurred when God turned his face away from Jesus because he poured out the sins of the world upon him. The veil was torn in two so that we as believers would have direct access to God himself and we wouldn't have to go through a priest as a mediator. When Jesus said it is finished, Old Testament saints rose from the dead and went into Jerusalem to appear to others in public. Earthquake that came affected the temple. And probably one of the greatest witnesses of who Christ was was the Roman soldier who took part in crucifying Jesus. And when he saw Jesus say it is finished and he gave up his spirit, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. His death was sufficient for the whole world to be saved and forgiven of sin, but his atoning death is only effective for those who believe whom God draws to salvation. And the point that John is making here is a direct attack on the false teaching of the Gnostics. Jesus was the God-man from birth and had the Spirit of God on him through his death, burial, and resurrection as he walked another 40 days on the earth after his resurrection. And then he went and ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit came. The Gnostics, as I mentioned, believed that the Holy Spirit left Jesus before the cross and Jesus died as a man, not the God-man. Another evidence we see mentioned in verses 7 and 8 is that the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. <clears throat> Verse 7, it says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. You see these three evidences presented. The water, Jesus' beginning of his ministry, baptism, blood representing his death on the cross, and the Holy Spirit are all in agreement of who Jesus was. 
The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 26, but when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit gives us inner confidence that we belong to Christ. In Romans 8, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit is a witness to the word of God in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them. Why? Because they have to be spiritually discerned and the Holy Spirit comes and illumines and enlightens our mind to be able to understand the word of God through the lens of spiritual things. The Holy Spirit makes us feel at home with God's people. It says in Romans 8 that uh, the Spirit bears witness with other spirits that we are part of his family. Look at verse 9 of 1 John 5. Look at verse 9. If you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. He says there, the testimony of God is greater than a man or a woman's testimony. The testimony of God is more authoritative. It's more accurate. It's more trustworthy. It's more important. You should put a lot more weight on it and more deserving of acceptance. Look at what it said in the Old Testament about human witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That was the standard for mankind. But Peter in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he lays it out and he tells him this, the group of people that were assembled, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or approved by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You've seen it. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God stamped his approval on Jesus for his healings, his teachings, and his miracles by raising him from the dead and saying, look, this is my son. Then we see the internal evidences within our bodies, within our hearts that prove that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So if we believe in Christ and the testimony by God himself, along with the inner confidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our life, we can have the certainty that we have the gift of eternal life. 
God only leaves us two options when it comes to Christ, believe in him or reject him. And if one rejects Christ, it is heinous and a damning sin that it's an affront to the very nature of God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Eternal life comes into reality in the life of the believer through regeneration, through being born again and receiving a new nature to go up against that sinful nature that already abides in every human being since birth. The change in our lives is the evidence of what happens in our heart at salvation. And in verse 12, John is speaking about the false teachers in 1 John 2.19 that left the church. They professed Christ, but they didn't possess him. And they didn't possess eternal life. John is reassuring his church family as a pastor that they were following the right teachings and possessed all the blessings of Christ. And the top one of all is eternal life. Hebrews 2.3 is a challenging verse. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We, are, we as believers receive eternal life not only from Christ, but by being in Christ. And so the application, do you live with humble certainty that you possess eternal life? <clears throat> and when you say you know, it should be from a perspective of humility because it's not anything that we have conjured up. It's not our strength, our will, our ability, our righteousness. It's all based on the grace of God, that he chose us in love before the foundations of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1.4. Moving on to our second main point this morning, John's testimony of certainties in the Christ follower's life. Notice this morning, there are five certainties mentioned here in verses 13 through 20. Number one, the certainty as we've been talking about of eternal life. In 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, I write these things. God's testimony is clear. And now the promise is given to those who believe. As it was explained to me on that night, in October 7th, 1972, after I prayed to receive Christ, it's like a contract. If you give Christ your life, he will give you eternal life. And I want to emphasize that this idea of eternal life represents the quality of life, not just in heaven, but now, even here on this earth. Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that he came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. So all the blessings of eternal life begin at that point when we cross the line of faith and we accept Christ as our Savior. When Sir James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform, was on his deathbed, a friend asked him, Sir, what are your speculations as you face the end of your life? Speculations, he said. I have no speculations. He said, For I know whom I believe it, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Total assurance that when he passed from this life, when his heart stopped beating, he would be in the presence of Jesus. The Gospel of John, John who wrote this book, wrote the Gospel of John, and at the end, his goal of the book was to believe so you would be saved. In 1 John, his goal here is know you are saved. Do you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? 
It would be a shame today if you're sitting here or watching on live stream. If you're here today and you've never received Christ and you don't take that opportunity, it's the most important question you will ever face in this life. And it's the one that will prepare you for that final exam when God says, why should I let you into heaven? It should be the answer because I trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and made him my savior and repented and turned away from my sin. And it's because of him I should be able to go into heaven because the gift of eternal life. So we see the certainty through answered prayer is the second certainty that we can have here in verses 14 through 17. The certainty through answered prayer. One of the evidences of a believer is that when we pray, we see answers to prayer. Not always in our time, not always the way we want the answer to be. Sometimes it's wait, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's yes, just as we prayed. But he answers our prayer. In 1 John 5.14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Prayer is such an important part of the Christian life. When we pray, it's showing that we are placing our dependence upon him and moving away from independence ourselves. Robert Law said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. And I believe as we pray, God changes our heart <clears throat> to do his will. George Mueller, that famous missionary in England who had an orphanage for, for kids, he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness. God wants his children to ask for prayer and he wants to answer. Oswald Chambers says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. That's why we should pray first and then do. Pray first and then do, because that's the greater work. God desires to meet the needs of his people by answering their prayers. And the goal is for believers to pray in harmony with God's will, with God's word, and the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we get the answer to prayer God desires. He says in, this verse, in these verses, confidence means freedom of speech, boldness, and openness. There's a verse in Hebrews that says, we can come boldly to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. Toward him, it says there in the verse, in the verse 14, it says, means in God's presence. So we're to confess our sin that hurts our fellowship with God and repent if we want our prayers answered. Many people get this confused as Christians. We're already forgiven of all our sin. But when we sin now, we break fellowship with the Father. And, he, and, and Psalm 66, 18 says, if we hide or cherish sin in our heart, God will not hear or answer our prayer. So we repent and we want that fellowship restored with the Father. And so as we think about that, we must pray in God's will. And how do we know God's will? Use the word of God. Listen to the Holy Spirit. If you need to go beyond that, seek godly counsel. Look at the circumstances around your life that's going on.
to help interpret and confirm what God's will is in your life. Now, verses 16 and 17 are some difficult verses to understand. We see this phrase, sin, that leads to death. What does that mean? Well, there's two options the commentators give here. John is speaking, first of all, possibly of non-believers who are in continual habitual sin. And they finally come to the place where they have the final rejection of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, the people accuse Jesus of doing miracles by the power, name, and authority of Satan. Jesus replied to this rejection in Matthew 12, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Strong words. John mentioned in verse 16 to pray for them. But it's futile, as we just read, because in 1 John 2.19 says that these false teachers had left the church. They did not know Christ. Sin in verse 16 is in the present tense with the thought that they were continuing habitually to sin. And John uses the same word elsewhere throughout this book, speaking of non-believers trapped in their habitual sin. So what's the second option? Well, John may be referring to believers who sin so seriously in God's thoughts that he will chastise them by taking them home early. One example we see in the story of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> they lied to the Holy Spirit. They died right on the spot. Another example is found in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talking about the Last Supper. That is why many of you who are weak and ill and some have died. They were doing improper things related to the Last Supper. They were desecrating it. And some died because of it. So the sin that leads to death is not one particular sin, but any sin that the Lord deems serious enough to be punished by God taking the believer home prematurely. The point John is making in verses 16 and 17 is that prayer for those committing a sin that leads to death will not be answered in the way the one is praying and hoping for. And we see another certainty, the certainty by having victorious power over sin. Power over sin, victory. In verse 18, it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The believer is not in this continual habitual sin, as 1 John 2 says, because when we sin, we can go to Jesus, our advocate, the one who is the payment for our sin, and we can have forgiveness with the Father because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. God protects his own. We are secure in him as we have said before. These verses talk about how Satan can't touch us. That means Satan cannot lay hold of us or fasten his grip on us. Sure, he can harass us in Job 1 and 2. We see all that happened to Job, not only taking away all his possessions and family, but eventually putting boils on his skin to endure. We know Jesus said to Peter that Satan desires to sift you as wheat in Luke 22. But Satan can never reclaim those who have left his kingdom and are now part of God's kingdom. And then we have, fourthly, the certainty that we belong to God, that we belong to God. In verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John reminds us that we are not of this world, but we are in it, that we're just passing through. 
that were pilgrims, as the Bible says in Hebrews 11, that were strangers, as it says in 1 Peter, that were aliens, that were not part of this world, but were to be salt and light influencers within the world. In Titus 2.11, it says, Paul says, for, by the, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. <clears throat> and this is the commission, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, unique, set-apart people, zealous to do good works. That's what a believer is. And fifthly, the certainty there is the certainty that Jesus Christ is equal to the one true God. He's equal. 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this is the true God and eternal life. Verse 20, you might want to underline or circle, this is the summary statement for the book of 1 John. He begins with the coming of the word of life in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And now John closes the book with the certainty that the Son of God has truly come. Three times John uses the word in this verse, truth. Truth means genuine, without fault or hypocrisy. John stresses understanding the truth, knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that leads us to the true God. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life. So Christians, we have certainty because of the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. The application here is, can you say yes to these five certainties as evidence in your life that you have a relationship with God? Can you say yes to these five evidences? Are they apparent? Are they at work in your life? And if they're not, you need to examine your heart, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to make sure whether you're part of the kingdom of God or not. Very quickly, our last main point this morning is the final verse in the book <clears throat> as we bring this series to an end. John's testimony to avoid false teaching. 1 John 5.21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen, so be it. This was the appropriate ending to this book. John lived in Ephesus and he wrote this letter there it was a city with many idols in worship. The one main one was Artemis or Diana. And John says to keep yourselves from idols. How do we do that? The first part of the verse, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. What we hold in our hearts is what we live out, what we believe and what we do. Guard your hearts, and second of all, get rid of idols. Get rid of idols. Idol worship is when we elevate anything above God and our heart and our actions. In the past, most idols were made out of wood and metal and things that were fashioned from this world into an image to be worshipped and adored. But today, our idols can be material things. It could be power. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be a lot of different things. And the world boasts of its enlightenment, but a Christian walks in the real light because God is light. The world talks about love, but it knows nothing about real love because as Christians, we experience the author of love. God is love. The world displays its wisdom and learning, but a Christian lives in truth because the spirit is truth. 
God is light, love, and truth, and these together make a life that is real. So John's admonition in this last verse, he says, keep yourselves from idols, can be paraphrased. Watch out for the imitation and the artificial and be real. Watch out for the imitation and the artificial and be real. The application, are you contending for your faith by living an examined life? Ask yourself, are these evidences at work in your life? Am I truly a believer in Christ? Our key thought as we wrap up the book of 1 John is this, live in the certainty of the truth that God has preserved to be passed on from generation to generation. That is John's desire, not for his church in Ephesus and the churches he oversaw in Asia Minor, but for us to know these certainties and to live in them here in the 21st century. Now, as we close, I left you some notes to take home and look at. This isn't an exhaustive way to discern truth from error, but here's some very simple, applicable things that you could do as you encounter different speakers, different people on YouTube and TBN and other places to begin to study what they say to make sure and understand what is truth and what is error in your life. But as we close today, do you know that you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? We have to all come to the place where we realize that we're sinners, that we've fallen short of God's standards. In in Matthew 5, he says, be perfect, therefore, as I am perfect. Well, I could tell you, probably within a few months after being born, I, I sinned. I'm sure we all sinned, if we're honest, right? So we broke the perfection rule right away. And James says, if we broke the law at one point, we're guilty of breaking all of it. But the good news is that Jesus died on the cross. He took our sin upon himself. And if we're willing to repent and turn away from our sin and ask him to forgive us of our sin and to come into our hearts and receive that gift by grace through faith, not by works, we can't earn our way. We can have 1 John 5.13. We can know that we have eternal life. Do you know that you know that you know. Let's pray. If you're here today or listening by the sound of my voice, I hope that you have the evidences, a certainty that you are a believer in Christ. And if you haven't, just pray this simple prayer. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner. I'm guilty of breaking your law. I'm not deserving of heaven. But I ask you to Help me turn away from my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Thank you that you died on the cross, that you were buried, that you rose again to give us the ability to have power over death and sin. And I ask you to come in and be my personal Savior today. Pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Lord, if anybody prayed that prayer today, I pray that they would uh, claim that verse in 1 John 5.13 for their own. And may we as believers continue to walk with certainty, with humble authority and confidence because of what your word tells us, that we are children of God. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.